the church in pictures. This is part four. Uh, we've been looking at pictures that the Bible gives us of the church to help us understand our relationship to God and to help us understand how he relates to us as his people. If you recall, we started with a discussion of the church as family, which is prominent in Scripture. We then looked last week as the, at the church as, if you remember, branches on the vine. That's a picture the Bible gives of the church. And also the picture of crops in a field is a very poignant picture that the Bible gives of the church. Today, we are now turning our attention to the picture of the church as temple. Uh, the church as temple. Temples feature prominently not only in Old Testament history among the Jews, the Israelites, but temples figure prominently in all of ancient history for about as long as there has been written human history, which is a fairly measurable period of a limited number of thousands of years. For as long as there has been human history, for almost that length of time, human beings have built temples in an effort to interact with the God or gods in whom they believed. Depending on the nation and their particular set of religious beliefs, much of their time and effort was given, devoted to temples. Do you remember the great incident early on in Genesis of Babel, the Tower of Babel? The descendants of Adam and Eve, the descendants of Noah and his family, they eventually multiplied. And at that point in human history, they were still united with one common speech, one language. And it took almost no time at all for their hearts to drift from the one true God of the universe, and to become very wicked. The one true God of the universe had not, up to that point, resided in a temple. His presence was not upon the earth in that way. And so, the wicked people of earth united around a common goal with one language to determine their own truth and their own reality, their own set of beliefs about who God is or who the gods are and how they could approach him or ascend to the places where he dwelled how they could approach him in his holy heavenly dwelling. And so here's what we read in Genesis 11:4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city, and then very specifically with a tower, which is very much a temple of sorts, a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for whom? For God? Well, for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. There's so much that could be said about this incident that we don't have time to discuss today, but suffice it to say, this tower, this huge pagan temple, was not of God and would not be inhabited by him or blessed by him, but it reveals something important historically, how human beings thought and acted at this time in history. They viewed the temple as the locus the place of human-divine interaction. This is the place where humans can interact with and intermingle with the God of the universe or gods whom they believed in. So in ancient times, these pagan people would build temples that were also known as houses or palaces, and they would actually uh, lay these huge foundations on the ground of rock and build the structure upon that, and these commonly became known as ziggurats. That's kind of a fun word, isn't it? Ziggurat. You can say it if you want. Uh, here's a picture or two of, of ancient ziggurats, what those looked like. This would be the basic structure in ancient uh, Near Eastern culture, in the Mediterranean. There's one that's actually been excavated. That first one was just a rendering. This is actual excavation of a ziggurat. 
And some of these weren't too unlike ancient Mayan temples, uh, like this one. Very similar sort of structure. And if you've seen any films that include some of these things, you know they're, they're, they're horrible. Ghastly things uh, happened atop these temples. Unbelievable amounts of human sacrifice and bloodshed as, as uh, gifts to the gods in whom they believed. This was the work of pagan people with their minds darkened by their sinfulness, fashioning idols for themselves and pagan beliefs for themselves. Well, the one true God, the God who created the universe from nothing, the God who created Adam and Eve, the God who spared Noah and his family in the great flood, the God who called Abraham out of a pagan nation into new life, into a new country, with a new name, that, that God, our God, we learn, did not, up to that point, confine himself to a temple built by human hands. He was the eternal, invisible God, omnipresent, meaning everywhere present, not just located in a structure of stone. And as Scripture is very clear about, where has he always dwelled? Even much later down the, down the road in the, the story of history, when he did manifest his presence, at least in part, in a temple, where has he really always dwelled, this God, the true God? Where, where has always been his home? Heaven. And heaven can't be geographically located or definely, or precise, excuse me, precisely defined, except for saying that heaven is simply the place where God is. That's our understanding of the place where God dwells. It's the place where he is. That's heaven. The Bible uses two different words, heavens and heaven, that mean drastically different things. The heavens are just the skies, the canopy, the atmosphere, part of the, the creation of the universe and the earth, the heavens and the earth. Heaven is that place where God himself dwells in unapproachable light. Now, interestingly, eventually, God did direct his people to construct something that could serve as a place, a physical place where he would meet with them under certain conditions. And uh, some of you perhaps don't love history, but I felt it was important to give a, a little brief historical summary of how the church became known as a temple. And so we had to do a brief history here of the temple in the Old Testament. Eventually, God did direct his people to construct something that would serve as a place where he would meet them, but it wasn't a temple proper, not yet, not at first. We know that at very first, God met with Moses where? Atop a mountain. That was kind of the first meeting place between God and sinful humanity. But then, a short time later, God directed his people to fashion a tent. And the word tent doesn't do justice to what this actually was. If you picture like your, your North Face five-person, three-season tent up in the mountains, this is not what we're talking about. But this tent became known as the tent of meeting. And it was there that God would, in a limited way, allow his presence, his glory, to dwell on earth as he would interact with his people through Moses. We read of this in Exodus 33. It says this, verse 7. Now Moses used, used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And wherever Moses went, or whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. So this was significant. This, was, this marked the beginning of what was known as 
a tabernacle where God would actually be among his people. God directed his people to build this. But what was significant about this passage we just read? It is very specific in that it says it was outside the camp. That is, outside the community of God's people. Why is that important? Because it shows that God's people at present, in their sinfulness, were cut off from his presence. They, could, they had to be outside of his presence. Away from his glory in their sinfulness. And only through a mediator could they have any contact whatsoever with God. And that mediator himself was imperfect. And yet, this is the beginnings of the concept of God's presence being among, or at least close to, his people. Which means, not all hope was lost for humanity. God had not severed the relationship with his people forever, although their sins certainly merited a permanent severing. Based on the details we find in the Old Testament, the tent of meeting, which was portable, it was a lot of work, but it was portable, it was constantly set up and brought down as God moved his people around the wilderness in their wandering. And so here's a picture based on the specifications in the the Bible of what this looked like. Here was the tent of meeting that would be set up with the the poles, the canvases, the, uh, the place where the sacrifices were, and then the dwelling where Moses would actually enter into to meet with God. And then here's another rendering of it that shows what it might have looked like with all the the camping of God's people setting up their own tents to dwell in close by. I'm not sure it was quite that organized and in perfect rows like that, but it's at least a possible picture to get your, your mind thinking and picturing. Well, what we find in Old Testament history is that God eventually lowered the curtain on this act on the stage of human history, that of the tent of meeting. He brought it to a close. As that rebellious generation who wandered in the wilderness grew old and passed away, God did not allow them to enter the the land of promise. Instead, God raised up a new generation of godly young people led by Joshua and Caleb who would honor him and who would lead his people out of the wilderness across the Jordan into the promised land. And so eventually the Israelites were finally established instead of moving around. They, were, they put down roots and they were each allotted their portions of land. But as is often the case in the Old Testament, it was almost no time at all before their hearts once again grew very darkened and wicked. And God raised up judges to rule among them and the people grew more wicked. And eventually they demanded a human king just like all the other nations around them had, very pagan, wicked nations. They said, we want to be like them. We want a king to rule over us. Samuel was a prophet at this time, and he was very good. He was godly. He loved the Lord. He honored the Lord's word, and this bothered him. And here's what we read of that in 1 Samuel 8, verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, accepted bribes, and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. That's a nice way to start a conversation. And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. And this is very important. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. You see, God had intended to be the ruler, the king of his people, and to rule their hearts. And they did not want that. 
As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Now if you have your Bibles, turn if you would to 2 Samuel 7. Um, While I'm making these next couple comments, we'll be in that chapter for a bit uh, for the rest as we get to the rest of this message. You can just put your finger there, 2 Samuel 7. So God raised up Saul, who at first looked pretty promising as a king, if you've read that part of the history. He was an impressive man in both stature and appearance. He had leadership qualities that were very desirable. He had charisma. He had aptitude. It seemed like Saul would be a great fit as king, and God was prepared to do great things through him. And yet, it wasn't too long, and Saul was revealed to have a heart that was not truly after God's own. And so God brought him down, and God raised up David in his place, a man who truly was after God's own heart. And so then we read in this history that David routed all the enemies of God and led the nation in a time of great prosperity and blessing, and a very brief episode of complete moral collapse notwithstanding, he became the greatest king the world has ever known, except for King Jesus. But David was so great, as God raised him up to be, that he became kind of a type or a shadow or a a precursor of the great king who would come, who was Jesus. David became a prophetic figure of one like David, but far superior would come to rule over the kingdom. We talked about that a lot last December, if you recall. And so getting back to our brief history of the temple here, here's what David said. Here's what was on his heart, because he's, he's, he's routed all the enemies. They've established themselves. They're living in nice houses. They're they're reaping the benefits of God's blessing in the land. And so here's what we read. If you want to follow along with me, if you don't have a Bible, that's fine. You can just listen, but um, we'll read here from 2 Samuel 7. After the king, this is David, was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. Now, just know when you see the word house, that is synonymous with temple. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over the people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning." And have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people, Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you 
Your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Before me, your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. That's amazing. This is very, very significant in the history of God's people. No longer is there a tent moving around where God's presence will be. Now he says, I'm going to establish you permanently, relatively permanently, and an actual house, an actual temple will be built where God will meet with his people. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn now to 1 Kings 8. Uh, We'll be there in just a moment here. But this is a significant moment in the history of God's people and in the history of of temple times. There's an entire segment of, of the history in the Old Testament known as First Temple Judaism. This is where God would finally make his abode, at least in a a partial way, to be among his people. And and what we read in that passage is that David wanted to do this. He was zealous to give God a house because he lived in a nice house as king. And he says, God has no place. And that was a good intention. That was a good desire. And yet God says, David, I appreciate this very much and I have plans for you, but I'm actually going to do this through your son, Solomon. He will be the one I raise up to build this house for my name. And yet, even though God was going to build this temple, what did we just say a moment ago about where the one true God has always dwelled? In heaven, right? And yet, he's saying that he's going to be in a house now on earth, where his glory, at least in part, is going to fill this temple. And yet, even with the absolute grandeur of this this temple project, even then, listen to what Solomon says about God's true dwelling place. This is Solomon the wisest man on earth, the richest, the king of all the land, the son of David, this is Solomon, building this temple, completing this temple, and yet what does even Solomon say about it? Let's read a little bit here in 1 Kings 8. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. All the Israelites came together to King Solomon at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanim, the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and Levites carried them up, and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark. Now, the ark, remember, is just like this chest. For any of you that aren't familiar with Old Testament history, it's this holy box that contains the actual tablets of the Ten Commandments and of the Word of God, symbolized the authority among God's people. This is God's revelation, His Word. This is the most holy thing. It's God's revelation of Himself, and they are to treat it with the utmost respect and reverence or else they would die. So the ark would always travel with the tent of meeting. And what does that tell us about ourselves? The only thing significant about gathering in a place as God's people is the fact that His Word should be there and His presence should be there, and that's all that matters, even in the Old Testament. So anyway, the priests brought the ark, this is verse 6, the priests brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. Now realize the temple has been built at this point, huge endeavor. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place. What's maybe one of the reasons those poles had to be so long? Have you seen Indiana Jones? Like, we don't want to get too close to this thing. This is a holy God. 
in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place, and they are still there today. Obviously, today was back then today. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord had made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. While the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and blessed them. Then he said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his own hand has fulfilled what he promised with his own mouth to my father David. For he said, Since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city in any tribe of Israel to have a temple built so that my name might be there, but I have chosen David to rule my people Israel. My father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, but the Lord said to my father David, you did well to have it in your heart to build a temple for my name. Nevertheless, you are not the one to build the temple, but your son, your own flesh and blood, he is the one who will build the temple for my name. The Lord has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded David, my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel just as the Lord promised. And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. I have provided a place there for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our ancestors when he brought them out of Egypt. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his his hands toward heaven. That's significant. Here we have the temple that's to house God's presence. And yet Solomon stretches out his hands toward heaven and says, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. Now, Lord, the God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said, you shall never fail to have a successor to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your descendants are careful in all they do to walk before me faithfully as you have done. And now, God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. And then here's case you've been trailing off because this is just a lot of detail and a lot of history zone in zone in now please pay attention now if nothing else here's what solomon who just completed this huge ridiculously expensive endeavor here's what he says but will god really dwell on earth the heavens even the highest heaven cannot contain you how much less this temple i have built yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy lord my god Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, the place of which you said, my name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven. What does he say about heaven? Your dwelling place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear forgive. What an amazing prayer to pray on such an occasion, a momentous occasion here. Here's a picture, as you can see, of what Solomon's temple completed in all its magnificence would have looked like. Psalm 113 says this, verse 5, who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? You see, when it says the heavens, it's, it's something as a part of the physical creation that God looks down upon. 
And then this most fascinating verse, Isaiah 66, 1, this is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? How can you house the God who is beyond comprehension and lives in a place that we can't even fathom in unapproachable light? The earth is like his footstool. Where will my resting place be? Where indeed? Where will the resting place of God be? Where will his presence abide? What will be that which he makes the place of his dwelling? What became of Solomon's temple? That entire period of Jewish history known as First Temple Judaism, what became of it in all its magnificence? God's people, despite his grace in coming down to meet with them, God's people were rebellious. They turned against him yet again. And they became so wicked for so long that God eventually allowed the pagan nations around them to come in and absolutely devastate them, culminating in what? The destruction of Solomon's temple. Such beauty, such a symbol of holy things left in absolute rubble. Not only that, but these pagan nations planting the abomination of desolation, it was called, the symbol of their pagan worship in the place of the temple. What a statement. This was essentially their attitude. Psalm 94, verse 4. This was the attitude of God's people in this temple time. They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, Lord. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the foreigner. They murder the fatherless. They say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob takes no notice. Take notice, you senseless ones among the people, you fools. When will you become wise? Does he who fashioned the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? Does he who disciplines nations not punish? Oh, he does see. He does hear, and he will punish, and he did punish. God's people were led into exile. Now, amazingly, if you read later into the history of God's people, what did he graciously allow? His people to be brought back and for there to be a rebuilding of the wall, of the temple, and thus, thus was entered this era of what was known as Second Temple Judaism, where the temple is being rebuilt. How magnificent those stories of godly individuals that he raised up to spearhead that effort. And yet, how does the story go? As surely as God would raise up a godly king or prophet, they'd run their race, they'd run it well, but then 10 more wicked ones would rise up after them in their place. And so, even though the new temple had been built, years turned into decades, decades into centuries, and before long, 400 silent years passed between the last page of the Old Testament and the first page of the Gospel of Matthew, the Christmas story. 400 years separate the two testaments of your Bible. And even though at the dawning of the New Testament Gospel time, even though the temple is still standing, tall and proud, and is fully functional, even so, many of the religious leaders of that day, the Pharisees, who ministered in the temple, they were proud and greedy and judgmental and wicked with hearts that belonged to the, to the father of lies, the devil, not to God. That's the setting, the historical setting of the temple when Jesus comes on the scene. And my oh my, does Jesus make some incredible statements about what the temple actually is and what it means. And this is part one. 
We have to appreciate the Old Testament background of what it means when Jesus declares himself to be the temple, but then also his people to be the actual temple. And so to do this justice, we'll have to continue this next week. Uh, Before we close, though, just a couple supplemental concluding thoughts for today. Even in the Old Testament, when the temple was constructed, what do we find? If you've read the Old Testament, those are some challenging chapters to read, aren't they? I mean, there are pages after pages of minutiae of details, measurements, materials, exactly how things had to be, exactly where they had to go, exactly how much space to part, exactly what materials would be used. All the measurements and the laying out of the whole structure given in detail in the Old Testament. And if you're, if you're set, if you, like, you got your OCD going and you're like, I'm gonna read every part of the Bible, even the lists of a thousand names and numbers, I'm gonna read it all. These are some of the hard parts to get through. The building of the temple is a hard section to just plow through What's, it, what's God trying to communicate to us about that? Why all the detail? Why all the, the inclusion of the minutia? Why the monotonous details? It might at first glance seem really irrelevant to us. But the real message God was communicating to his people even then was this. If there is ever going to be a way for me as the living God to stoop down and to actually dwell among people, sinful, broken human beings, And for you to actually approach me in in my holiness and not be consumed in your sin because of the holiness of my glory, then every tiny detail matters. And if there's going to be a temple in which we meet, there has to be holiness. Everything has to be perfect. Every sin has to be accounted for and removed for you and me to have fellowship. That's why the detail matters. It was a symbol in the Old Testament of what was to come in the body of Christ. That temple, for all intents and purposes of that day and age, was to be a perfect dwelling where sinful humanity and holy God could come and find peace and reconciliation. Now, that didn't happen in the Old Testament in its ultimate sense. It was just a shadow. It was a preview. That's why all the detail, it had to be perfect. Was God ever planning to save his people through an Old Testament temple of stone or cedar? No, he was giving foreshadowings through those mind-numbingly detailed specifications of temple construction. He was pointing to a future reality about a different kind of temple that would have to be absolutely perfect if it was going to be able to house holy God and be a place of meeting with sinful humanity. That temple could have no trace of imperfection in it. And the temple worker, the great high priest, who would be far superior to Moses or Aaron, the mediator, would have to be perfect in every detail. If sin remains a present and persisting reality, there can be no peace between holy God and sinful man. There can be no reconciliation. Sin has to be removed before God can dwell among his people. So what does it mean for the church to be the temple? Well, that's what we'll try to answer next week now as we, as we finish out the second part of this message. So.